0: Good Wednesday morning and welcome back. And today, John Patrick is continuing on from last week's talk, where we we're essentially talking about Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the meeting together and breaking of bread. And we talked about that. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that. You'll get some context for today's talk. And today we are going to talk about books and things that have come out of that for Dr. John. One of the books that I've, I've frequently uh, show to... Uh, encourage other people to read is this one Foolishness to the Greeks by Leslie Newbegin. this is my original copy and uh, I was looking at it last week and noticed it was given to us by good friends in 1988 uh, Tony and Jane Cummins uh, uh, she that had been N.T. Wright's secretary in Oxford when um, Tony was doing his PhD with N.T. Wright I've seen him for a year or two, but it became one of the most important books for me. Uh, And one of the things that's already come out of this podcast is a few people asking about books and how can we read together? I mean, it's very difficult to read together online. I don't know how to solve that problem. Um, You've got to find a group of people who want to read. What we can do online is help you to start engaging with a book that will seriously make a difference to you. Um, This is particularly, uh, my major audience is medical, but I I stretch further than that. And what this book does is, I think, one of the most brilliant books on engagement across cultures, um, which we have to do because we're now in a post-Christian age. Uh, The fact that the younger generation... Don't know, any, don't know about the Holocaust, for instance, and have no real knowledge of the Bible to a very large degree. It's terrifying, because it means Acts 2.42 is not part of their lives. Uh, they are not building a solid Christian base. Now, Leslie Newbegin, the author of this book, went off to India as a young man, as a missionary, uh, of a liberal persuasion theologically. Very smart, very clever young man. Um, and uh, he had, I suppose, guilt feelings about the British involvement in India, although, let's face it, there was no military conquest of India. <laughs> uh, it was the British East, East India Company that basically took over because they ran an effective capitalist system which the Indians didn't have. And the best uh, guy to read that whole history, I'll leave that. There's a wonderful Indian guy, and I'll, you can remind me to talk about him later. But he writes about the role that the British played in India, and in particular of Christian civil servants, in a very, very interesting and persuasive way. Much as Tom Sowell writes about the impact of uh, colonialism on Africa as being by and large, essentially positive, not negative, and he's a black scholar. But of course, uh, the young who only know how to be angry without knowing any history are in deep trouble. Uh, But that's another story for another day. Back to to what happened to Newbegin. So he arrived in India, and he realized he needed to learn the language. So, So many evangelical missionaries don't become fluent in a language. That's that's beyond belief. If you're gonna be living with people, you've gotta to learn to speak their language. And there's a message for us there. I mean, we've been talking about Genesis in the recent past, and what God did at Babel was to divide people up on the basis of language. And if you don't have a shared language, and deeper than mere words, you cannot have a culture that will function. There's never been a multicultural society in the history of the world. In the end, a culture has to dominate. And it dominates because it does the job better than the others. I mean, uh, just this week, I listened to a, a feminist on trigonometry uh, saying that she has to recognize, and she's only, I guess, looking at her in her 30s, she writes for the Guardian, the New Statesman, and others, very smart. She says, the sexual revolution has been a disaster, especially for women. And she says, much as I don't like the idea in some respects, I realize that monogamous marriage for life is the best option the world has ever achieved for children, for families, and for a stable society. Wow. She's right, of course, but I didn't expect to see a 30-year-old well-known feminist, she's got to take flack for that, but she's being honest. Uh, cultures have to answer big questions, and uh, if they don't have an answer to the big question, and another culture comes along that does, they will lose. Uh, and the big questions uh, are, fundamentally, I did them as nine questions, which I first got from Peter Crafft many years ago, and... Uh, Sort of smooth it out a little for my purposes. For medical students who take things in fast and then go away and think about them. But everybody at some point in their life, if they don't become totally drug addled and crazed and incapable of thought, face some big questions. And the first one is how did I come to be here? Is this really just a colossal accident? Like Uh, the social Darwinians would have you believe? Or are we created? It's one of the two. There doesn't seem to be any other option. But one has far more explanatory power than the other. And also, one has responsibilities attached to it, the other has none. And then you start thinking, okay, so where did I come from? Good question. I'm not sure I can answer it. Why am I here? Why do I feel altered? Why do I every now and again, even the worst of us do good things? Especially, usually children can be the stimulus to that. Some brute who happens to be sober at the time will rescue a child from in front of a bus without thinking because he's human when he's not full of drugs and alcohol. And children civilize us in that way they always have Jesus says unless you become as a little child you won't come at all that's the deal so where does that come from you don't see that happening in the animal kingdom in the same way they they're just instinct driven but we are this is not instinct this is this is rational in the very deepest sense because it it creates a society that is rationally better than ones that don't behave in that way. And when we lose that sense of charity, that sense of oughtedness, uh, we lose the sense of duties to one another, our society begins to fall apart. So looking back now, I realize how incredibly blessed I was to grow up basically uh, after the Second World War. I just about remember the VE Day celebrations when I was five years old. I can remember the we had a a street party and all the children, somehow or other their mums and dads made them fancy dress costumes. They weren't very fancy, but my mum was a good seamstress. She made me a fireman's outfit and my dad made a little wooden axe. I can remember the axe. I can see it in my mind's eye and everybody had a party. There wasn't much in the way of food to celebrate, but they managed to to have a party. Um, And this was a blue collar area, sort of South Side Chicago, if you like, except that nobody locked their doors. Nobody had a gun. There was never a murder on the street in my lifetime. Divorce was virtually unheard of. I think it happened once in my lifetime on that street, which was the first 18 years of my life. all the kids played on the street all the while, so the big difference between now and then is there no helicopter parenting, and what small amount of traffic there was for service vehicles. The milkman, the, well, the postman had a bicycle, but the baker the milkman. Uh, they came along, and the coalman delivering the coal, and those kinds of things. But they knew their kids around, they drove carefully. There was never an accident to the kids on the streets. Um, and nobody locked their doors. And that's better than what we have now. Where you have trackers on everything and you're trying to let your child go to the corner store without a crash helmet and a tracer on him. You know, that's ridiculous. But that's the second question that's been answered, but it was answered by Christianity, Judeo-Christian thought, and had been answered for 2,000 years. Now... The liberal elite who came along who hate God, uh, at least in Britain, they kept the Bible in in school for cultural reasons because they they, they love their literature and they realized that Shakespeare and all the great writers in English literature were deeply dependent upon scriptural metaphors. So they kept the Bible in school for cultural reasons and every day in my first, Uh, Before I went to university, every day at school, 12 years, the Bible was read. Not just a verse, uh, not over the loudspeaker, but in in your classroom. And in my case, it was read before I went to school and when I came back as well. So I had the Bible at least three times every day and more on Sunday. Um... That goes into your soul, giving you a vocabulary and a form of knowledge that goes much deeper than mere words. And that's what I want to get to in a a moment or so because this guy talks about it very well. Um, In America in the 60s, you took the Bible out of school and you're paying the price. It was the most stupid educational movement uh, that was ever made in America. And the pretense that all religions are equal they're not. They're all different. And uh, Those that haven't been taken over by stupid multiculturalists, like, do you think if you went to a Muslim country, they'd accept you, uh, give you just as much space in school to read the Bible as to read the Quran, You know perfectly well that wouldn't happen at all. Neither would it happen in a Buddhist or a Hindu society or anywhere else. The only country in the world that allows all religions to have space is Israel. The Muslims didn't allow the Israelis access to their holy sites, but vice versa, the Israelis do. Uh, they have a long history. They know that truth matters, and the way to win the battle is that way. Um, but we've lost that. and Unfortunately, the Israelis are, are lost because of their choice about Christ. Uh, but they are still the chosen people in many respects, and it, it shows in their intellectual performance. So, that's the second question, why am I here? Um, each of the, the world's great cultures will give you different answers. Now, you, you have to face the fact that, that Muslim radicals are reading the Quran literally. It's only if you refuse to read it literally that you won't be a radical. Um, there are at least half a dozen surah in the Quran which if I was in charge, I would say, if you want to come to this country, fine, we would like to help you, but you must read these out loud and say, I don't believe they apply here. So you've got to deny the bits of the Quran that tell you when you meet meet uh, somebody who doesn't believe, which is most people now, the pagans, we're neo-pagans in North America, even some people who call themselves Christian, if they won't convert to Islam, chop off their head. It's there. It's not deniable. Uh, now, we have sophisticated ways of pretending we've we've grown past that, but our world is not that much better, is it? So, the, the question of how you answer the oughts is very big, and I don't have any doubt that the best solution is Judeo-Christian thought. If I thought otherwise, I would be whatever one I thought had got it right. More easily, I mean, I was tempted by Marxism until uh, I went behind the Iron Curtain. That's the way to get cured. Uh, On an unconducted tour, it only took one trip. I'm glad my Marxist grandfather died before his utopian dreams were dashed, which they were. Utopian dreams always fail, because the great strength of Judeo-Christian thought is it begins right from the beginning. When God says to Cain, evil is crouching at the gate, and you must control it and he didn't. The fall is the one Christian doctrine which is the foundation of everything else, in a sense. It makes everything else necessary. Um, Everybody knows it's true. You can say to anyone who's being honest, imagine what you would do if I had the ability to put a bubble over your head with your thoughts on display for the next week like a cartoon character. What are you going to hide? None of us could survive a week and have any friends at the end of it, even a spouse perhaps, uh, if our real thoughts, before we refuse them, were on display to other people. We are a troubled people. We don't know where our thoughts come from or where they go, but my goodness, we know they're real. And we know that when we give in to certain sorts of thoughts, other people pay the price as well as us. So the ought question is huge. And dominantly, what should be insisted upon in high school is that they teach the truth about Darwinism and they don't have to use a Christian. That's, I'm not concerned about that. I, the evolution occurs at the micro level, there's no question. I don't know how far it can explain. I know it's not anyway any way capable of being a total explanation of humanity. But David Stowe, the Australian atheist who committed suicide when he got cancer, was so angry about social Darwinianism, he wrote a book called Darwinian Fairy Tales, which is brilliant. Um, A pen dipped in elegant venom as he attacks the liberal elite for being irrational. There's no basis in Darwinism for the emergence of a moral system. It cannot do that. Um, that should be taught, because it's true, and if they want to not teach it, they have to show why, they, the only way they could do that is by reading David's stove and then showing that he's wrong, which they cannot do, he's not wrong, he knew he was not wrong, and he knew why. So that's the next question, where did I come from, why am I here, where am I going? I mean, in medicine, you see that at the end. At the end of life, everybody has to face that question. Now, what we do in the modern world, and we're doing it increasingly earlier, is we don't allow people to face that question. We make them incapable of facing it, and we shuffle them out of life without ever achieving meaning. That's not good news. And those people who are currently helping their lost relatives to shuffle out of life with MAID are going to pay in terms of psychological, psychic and spiritual dis-ease for the rest of their lives. Yes, uh, the bureaucrats love the idea of people dying two months earlier than they would have done because that will save so much money because we spend so much money at the end, but they haven't thought about how much psychiatric uh, drug and alcohol abuse is going to grow out of being an agent in the death of someone you said you loved before they had sorted their soul out. It's it's going to be a pain beyond words. We're not going to have enough mental health workers to cope. We'll collapse unless we change, unless we repent. It's not a small thing, so that's the next thing. Where am I going? Heaven or hell? There is no hell. Well, the absence of God is where you're going. Um, you may be wrong. There may be a judgment. It may be worse than you think. I don't know. I hope it's just obliteration because I can't imagine permanent suffering in sense. I, I would think that without Christ, which would certainly be part of it, you'd be capable of thinking nothing. you will be lower than the worms, so to speak. I don't know. But what I do know is that the one reality in life that turns up in the most difficult situations and illuminates them in the most wonderful light is Christ at the time of death, and especially of children. If you don't believe me, read Diane Comps' little book, A Window on Heaven, K O M P. Um, Every family should have a copy on on their shelf, and every time you see one, pick it in a second-hand bookshop, pick it up and give it away. She simply describes children dying and how they brought her back to faith. It's beautifully done. So that, that's the first trio. The next trio overlaps in, in a more practical way. It's uh, uh, the big questions in the sense of how do I cope with death? How do I cope with suffering? How do I deal with injustice? Death, suffering, and justice are the big issues. Uh, they relate to the first three. all interdigitate. Uh, If there is nothing in this life beyond a battle for the genes, then there is no meaning, and death is just an absurdity and a horror. And as for suffering, we do what we can to relieve it, but it's horrible. It cannot be explained away, neither can death. Only Christianity doesn't explain it away. It says you have become so resistant to reality this is the only way that that, that you might wake up to reality that god loves you uh, only if the story is that big can it make sense of all the horrors of our world god says it is worth it you cannot bear it now says christ but one day you will understand i promise you that and justice will be done uh, I've spent my clinical life largely with children that the modern liberal elite want to destroy before birth in one way or another. But I think they are the most civilizing group of children on earth because they can evoke a humanity that's almost half dead and bring it back to life. Uh, The story is big enough in our case. Justice, uh, I mean, the only question you have to ask these social justice warriors... Define justice. What is it? Do you really want to have equality of outcome? Then there'd be no reason to do anything, no inventiveness, no motivation. Everybody's got the same anyway, so why would we bother? We will just go down and down into a lower and lower, meaningless society. Equality of opportunity, now that's an entirely different thing. But you can't even describe justice and what its prerequisites are. If we are going to have justice, who controls the judges, or do they serve their own group as you are doing at the moment, or think you're serving your own group, you're actually doing them a disservice, but that's another discussion. There is, There, is, there are no courses on the philosophy of justice in law school, because there is no philosophy of justice that they can live with. They don't want to face it, so they don't teach it. There's no philosophy of medicine for the same reason. And bioethics is a denial of ethics, because without transcendence you can't have ethics and you can't have justice. Um, It's all written down. It's all available. Um, You can find it on my website. Um, And that can help you, because then you are brought by sheer weight of evidence to say, well, I can't dismiss Christianity as stupid. At least that's step one. So that leads you to the last trio, which is what education should be about and isn't. Um, what can I know? What lies within the realm of possibility of knowledge for me? Uh, and you have to work your way work away at that, the nature of knowledge and how you acquire it and how you know it's true or false. But that leads to the next one because once you've got that knowledge, you've got to answer the next question is, um, how you apply it? What can I know, therefore what ought I to do? Is the end point, ethics. And in between, you've got the whole question of education which T.S. Eliot saw the problem coming in the 1930s, where he described, he said, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Now we have deans of medical schools, at least, who are totally uneducated, crowing about the information-rich environment they've produced, and we now have uh, the real come comeuppance for education is hilarious. Now we've got algorithms that can write essays, that are better than they would normally write because at least they'll be quasi-grammatical. Um, how are they going to deal with this? There's only one way it can be dealt with and they they, they will not enjoy it because uh, if you want to find out whether somebody can actually think, you have got to give them something to write about without access to all that information. The only thing that's going to be worthwhile is an essay written without access to... Uh, Those phones, you can have the title of the essay before, if you like, that at least mean you can do some research for You won't know exactly what you're going to be asked. And you can sort it out. Einstein said a long while ago, actually, that he considered education mainly to be the action of bringing students into a tacit world. That's a very... I love the, the term tacit knowledge and I'll I'll talk about it a little bit and that will be enough for today because you can think about tacit knowledge for a very long while once you get your head around the idea. If you look it up in the dictionary, there are multiple definitions, including Einstein's, Um, but the essence of it is very simple. It's knowledge that you have, which is undeniable, but you cannot describe it in a way that other people have to accept it. Anybody who's married could recognize their spouse after a very short time from a rhythm of speech in which you didn't hear the words, even a footfall. There are all sorts of ways. That I know that Sally is somewhere in the background around here because I can hear her influence. I can't describe it, but that's got to be Sally. And she can certainly do the same with me. Uh, can we describe how we do it? No, we haven't a clue. Uh, Medicine is very good in humbling you in that way because what you do when you really teach medicine as opposed to the silly information into short-term memory reproduced and you get an A and then you're supposed to be a good doctor and you don't even get through residency. Uh, Because patients come to you um, because they don't feel well and very often they're inarticulate about what that means and you now have the process of it's a very interesting one of sorting out what's actually going on and then being able to tell them something about it. And of course, this is immediately requires you in the modern world to say, do you wish me to affirm your current beliefs or do you wish me to tell you what I think is the reality and what's likely to happen? Now they're stuck. I mean, the people, the kids have been abused, and that's the only word for it, be being told that they, They really know that they ought to be the opposite sex and we can help you to do that. Instead of telling them, look, what we will do is remove your ability to have children so that you're not a a male or a female. We can't make you one or the other in any complete sense. But you can believe that you're one or the other. And as long as you don't think about it too much, you'll be all right. But judging by the suicide rates, um, there's going to be a lot of litigation from this process. But of course, most people, when they come to the doctor because they're not feeling well, they want truth, they don't want affirmation of their worldview, or uh, they're not going to be ticky off the pronouns, as long as you make them face that fact and say, look, if you want to deal with the the pronoun and all the rest, that uh, I haven't got time for that as a doctor, go and find a counsellor who will teach you how to deal with that more effectively, and when you're ready to speak in ordinary common parlance, I can handle it with you, and I will tell you the truth as far as I know it, I'm not going to be 100% accurate, but I'll do my best. And, of course, that's exactly what you want from your doctor. So, medicine has got a privileged position. It needs to use it to push back on this nonsense that's going on at the moment. So, there is no wisdom left in our world. Where is the wisdom we've lost in knowledge? And the knowledge has been turned into information. Your truth? No, come off it. Ah... Uh, We really do believe in truth quite frequently, particularly we believe in it when our spouse cheats on us, right? Or when you get dumped by your boyfriend or girlfriend. That's not an illusion. What you feel at that moment is a response to a deep requirement in human nature for fidelity, and it's been broken away. That's why no one recovers completely from the divorce of their parents. You adjust to it, you carry on living. But you will always be envious of those children who grew up without ever knowing what it meant. Certainly could not conceive of it happening in their family. I mean, every Christmas and Thanksgiving, uh, you know, when we get together as a family, it almost brings me to tears to think about it, but there's 30-plus people there And there isn't a person in the room who has gone through the divorce of their parents or their own divorce. That's a gift from on high. And its value is beyond the price of rubies. Um, All that comes from tacit knowledge. We We cannot describe our conversion. We try to do it and we shouldn't in my view we've bought into the world's view that the only things that count as knowledge are things that you can explain to somebody else and they can tick the boxes. Well, one thing that's most real in the life of a Christian doesn't fit in those little boxes. God comes to us. We don't come to God. Get the cat and the mouse the right way round. Unfortunately, the cat is not out to destroy us, but to love us. And, ah, description of how faith comes to life for us is not explanatory. It doesn't tell anyone else how to do it, but it does make it very clear that this is a real thing, not an imaginary thing. It works in tough situations. It makes better people, not worse people. So, uh, just, if you're having trouble with this one, just go and read the interview between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter three. Nicodemus is a modern man in many ways, uh, although he's religious. He was a, a professor in our terms and he was proud of his abilities, I'm sure. And also like all professors, very aware of people who are better at it than he, they are. So they're very Being a professor, it's very hard not to be envious. Uh, getting over that is an important step forward. Uh, most people never get over it. So he watches Jesus' teaching and realizes he's a lighter, better than I am at this. He's, he's playing in a different field. Uh, and so he goes to Jesus by night so that nobody knows what he's doing and he can't get flack from his group, so to speak. And Jesus gives him what I call the greatest non-answer of all time because he knows exactly what Nicodemus wants. Nicodemus wants to teach with the authority that Jesus has. And Jesus says, The problem is, you can't get to where you want to go from where you are now without help. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot even comprehend, let alone live, the way I want you to. But if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, you will find your way, as Nicodemus did. Uh, That's the way to talk about our faith. When somebody says your faith is irrational uh, in an academic environment, I say under my breath, thank you, Lord, for delivering them into my hands because I know what's going to happen now. I say, no, you can't possibly understand my faith. You can see some of its impact and I can tell you stories of how people's lives were changed by it. It's certainly not irrational. It's better thought of as suprarational. It didn't make me a less good scientist. It made me a better one. Several of the most important things I had the privilege of doing that have helped people's lives in their thousands around the world would not have happened if I had not been a Christian. you see the world differently. Occasionally, you see it through the Master's eyes, and that is a very special moment. And that's what we need to bear witness to. We're not required to do anything except go and tell what the Lord has done for you. Now, if you don't have anything to tell, you've got a lot of work to do. Um, And that's where you get back to Acts 2.42. You start... If you claim to have believed that Jesus is the Son of God and have called him Master and Lord, then you have to start doing what he tells you to do, obey. I mean, the Christian definition of love is so straightforward. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's also the third beatitude, but I'll leave you to think about that. Love me Uh, is measured by obedience. Now, uh, there's nobody listening to this podcast who doesn't know of at least one bit of their life which is out of order and needs to be put into order. Make that a central focus of your prayer, ask for the help you need, put it in order, uh, and it will be given to you. That's the promise, not necessarily quickly. The more arrogant you are, the longer it takes. It took John Wesley 10 years, but he got there. That's enough for this week, I think. God bless you Thank you guys all for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this. If you are enjoying it, think about sharing it with a friend or a colleague. And if you have a question for Dr. John, you can go do that and ask that at johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. Thank you guys all again. We'll see you all next week.